I'm thrilled this morning for us as a faith family to begin a new section in our study of how to be a first responder to the gospel. If you recall, our outline for this study comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42, which records for us the very moment that the New Testament church was brought into being. And what we saw and see from these two short verses is that this wondrous work of God called the church all began with the preaching of the gospel and how people, by God's grace, responded to it. Acts 2, 41 through 42 says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers through those four actions, we find the foundational essence of what it means to be a church. And it is all about what is the gospel and how are we to respond to it. The gospel, if you recall, is the good news that according to the pages of scripture alone, sinners like you and me, who would otherwise be hopelessly condemned beneath God's wrath, can be saved. How? By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This is the gospel. And so according to Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42, how are we to respond to it? Well, we already saw and we've been studying, first we are to believe. If we are to respond properly to the good news of Jesus Christ, we must believe it. must embrace it by faith and receive it and depend upon it. And when we do according to the word of God himself, we will be saved eternally. But if you recall from last week, that moment of initial faith is not the end of our response to the gospel. It is the beginning of our response. It is but the first step of a brand new life that is to be lived in its entirety to the glory of God alone. That's why we've been saved. That's why we've been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's so that our lives would be lived to the glory of God alone. That's why God has saved us and kept us here. That's why he has transformed us and he has made us new creations with new hearts that are filled with new affections and new thoughts and new desires. God has done this new work within us so that all of our life here on earth would be lived all for his glory. And having been born again in Christ, his great purpose as believers is now our great pleasure. He, or we as God's people, long to magnify the worth and the wonder of our great God. We long to give glory to our great God and Savior for the great things that he has done. And hallelujah, God does not just save us by his grace and say, okay, good luck trying to figure out how to live your life now for my glory. He gives us very specific, concrete steps that we can know how we can begin to live this new life for his glory and honor. He has told us exactly how to do that in this worship manual called the Bible. And that's what our study is all about. It's highlighting these very concrete steps that we are to take to begin our new life 
living for the glory of God. It's all about returning. This study is all about returning to the foundations and making sure that you and I, all of us here in this place, have become first responders to the gospel for the glory of God. It's His name. It's His reputation. It's His worth that is at stake based on how we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our outline passage in Acts chapter 241 makes it clear that after believing, the very next step in responding to the gospel properly for the glory of God is to be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Glorify God by going public with your faith in this most initial and basic and foundational way. Acts 2.41 says this, So those who received His word were baptized. In that very first day of the New Testament church, 3,000 souls believed and 3,000 bodies were baptized as an everlasting testimony for the rest of the church for all time, setting the example. How are we as believers in Jesus Christ to respond to the gospel? Answer, believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus said, go therefore in all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. And he immediately follows up that command with baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Be a first responder to the gospel. Believe and be baptized. Now that is incredibly simple, is it not? And it should be. Follow Christ in faith. Believe, and then live the rest of your life following Christ in obedience, beginning with baptism. Be baptized. Glorify God and go public in your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. However, when we look out at American evangelicalism, I can say for myself, I am incredibly concerned because I do not see simplicity in the matter of baptism. I see chaos in American churches today. I see a world that is filled with unbelievers who are baptized and churches filled with believers who are unbaptized. In other words, people who shouldn't be getting baptized are, and people who should be getting baptized are not. Why? Because just as American churches have largely neglected teaching the biblical gospel, they have also largely neglected teaching biblical baptism. And where truth is not proclaimed, error will always sneak in. We see it everywhere today. Because the American churches have neglected the biblical teaching of baptism, there's a great blurring of the line that now exists today between who's in Christ and who is not between where the world ends and where the church begins, between who's merely a professor of Jesus Christ and who's actually a possessor of Him. That line is blurred by abandoning biblical baptism, but it is redrawn and it is made clear by embracing it and re-embracing it for the glory of God. Remember, these steps of responding rightly to the gospel are all designed to bring glory to who? To God in heaven. For His sake. For the sake of His holy name. 
to make clear through biblical faith and biblical baptism who actually belongs to Christ for the glory of God and who doesn't. And so for this morning, we're going to do three things. We're going to try to do a course correction here at this church that by God's grace, he might even use in our own lives to offer a course correction to those other churches in this community and perhaps even by God's grace around this nation. We need to restore to ourselves a concept of what is biblical baptism. How do you respond to the glory of God in this way, rightly? So for this morning, we're going to do three things. First, we're going to define biblical baptism. We're going to define biblical baptism. What is baptism according to Scripture alone? Second, in light of that definition we're going to examine the two main deviations from biblical baptism. And then third, we're going to consider the demand for biblical baptism. Why should someone who believes in Jesus Christ be baptized? What should be their motivations? So the definition of deviations from and the demand for biblical baptism. But before we begin, let's ask the Lord to bless us in our study of his word, who teaches us good judgment and knowledge through believing his commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much for the great privilege we have to gather here in this place where there can be an open and public declaration of the truth. Father, we thank you for this great privilege that we have this morning to hear your word, and we pray that we would respond in worship to your word by hearing it and obeying. Father, we we ask that you would do a work in our midst for your honor and for your glory. Help us, Father, as an assembly. Heed your word. So that all the world would know that you are God and that you do a real work in the hearts of your people. May we learn the importance this morning of responding to your grace and responding to your salvation, responding to the gift of Jesus Christ, not only through faith, but then from faith into obedience and into baptism. Help us to honor you with our lives, beginning in this first and most important way. For your honor and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So to be a first responder to the gospel for the glory of God, you must first, foremost, preeminently believe. Secondly, once believing, you must be baptized. But what is baptism? Well, just as we carefully define the gospel that we are to believe, let's also carefully define the baptism that we are to observe. So first, let's consider the definition of biblical baptism. The definition of biblical baptism. What is biblical baptism's procedure? In other words, how how is one to be baptized? And the quick answer that I'll give you this morning is by immersion. The Bible teaches that baptism is by immersion. The Bible teaches this in two primary ways. First, by word choice. And second, by example. So first, by word choice. The word baptism 
is a transliteration of the Greek words bapto or baptizo, which literally mean to be immersed, to be thoroughly dunked, submerged, or plunged into something. Pick up a lexicon, that is simply what it means. So if we're to be accurate, just at a word usage level, when we're talking about baptism, uh, we are talking about a full-scale immersion into something, not just a splashing or a sprinkling of something. In fact, to talk about a baptism that is not immersion is really an oxymoron. It's talking about a non-immersion immersion. How does that work? Even John Calvin, who did not baptize by immersion, uh, said this, and even acknowledged the word baptize means to immerse, and it's certain that immersion was the practice of the early church. So Calvin ended up admitting this, because that's exactly what the Bible teaches, not only by word choice, by using the word baptizo, baptism, but second, the Bible teaches this by example. The Bible always portrays baptism as a full immersion into water, always. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 6 and 16, we read the Jews were being baptized by John in the Jordan River, and then verse 16 says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So baptisms occurred in the Jordan River, according to these verses, because there had to be enough water to get into it and enough water to come out of. There had to be enough water to be immersed in. John 3.23 says this, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem. Why? Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. You don't need plentiful water if baptism is just getting splashed or sprinkled. But you do need plentiful water if you're going to be immersed in it, right? Again, Acts 8, 38 through 39, the eunuch says to Philip, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? How much water was there? Verse 38 tells us they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, he immersed him, and then verse 38 says, And they came up out of the water. So here we see both by word choice and by example that baptism at its most basic level Now, I haven't finished the definition for you, but this is a basic starting point. Is a person experiencing a full public immersion into water? That is the procedure for biblical baptism that churches are to observe. You say, okay, but why does this procedure matter, right? Why does the Bible say that baptism needs to look like this? Because the Bible isn't that specific in other things. It doesn't say, you know, what your Sunday morning worship service ought to look like and this is your structure of service and everything else. So why, when it comes to baptism, is it so specific in terms of procedure? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. No. <laughs> um, the reason why there is a specific procedure to biblical baptism is because there is a specific participant in biblical baptism. And the procedure is to reflect the participant. So in examining our definition of biblical baptism, we not only need to ask ourselves, what is biblical baptism's procedure? We also need to ask ourselves, what is biblical baptism's participant? In other words, who should be the ones that are baptized? And in short, the answer is believers. Those who through faith have been immersed into Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They are, they are the participants in biblical baptism. Believers and no one else. The evidence for this is frankly overwhelming. If you study the New Testament, the only people who are ever baptized are those who have already believed, who have already received the word of God with faith in believing. 
This is what we see in our outline passage in Acts 2.41. It is those who receive his word that were baptized. In Acts 10.47, Peter says again, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Why? Since they have received the Holy Spirit. In other words, since these people have been saved and have received the Holy Spirit, what are we waiting for? Let's baptize them. They should be baptized because they had clearly, in Acts 10, 47, when a manifestation of the sign of the Spirit came upon them, they had clearly received faith in Jesus Christ, therefore, they ought to be baptized. Over and over and over again, the testimony of the New Testament is unwaveringly clear. Participation in biblical baptism is reserved for believers in Jesus Christ. But again, ask yourself, why? Why? And it's because of this. Baptism is no mere ceremony. It is a beautiful picture of a spiritual reality. And therefore, it should only be administered to those who have experienced that reality. And I want you to understand this wonderful uh, spiritual reality that baptism is a picture of. So if you'd please turn this morning to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. There is so much that I could say this morning about baptism, but I'm trying to give a summary for you this morning. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. Here in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking to believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... Stop right there. Paul says there, That all of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation have been baptized. Not into water, but into Christ. Into Him. We have been immersed, we have been submerged, we have been plunged into Jesus spiritually by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we have all been baptized into one body. All of us as believers have been immersed deeply into Jesus Christ. We've become spiritually one with him. And so if you have in your mind, that means that when God looks at you as someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ, he does not see you. He sees Christ, right? Christ in his righteousness, Christ in his work, and you in him. It's the basis of our acceptance before God. We are immersed. We are baptized. We are plunged into the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done. And Paul tells us that we become spiritually one with Christ in true critical ways. First, we who have trusted in Christ have been immersed into his death. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You know, the first thing that you experience after putting your faith in Jesus Christ is you attend your own funeral. You experience a death to the power of your old sinful life. But not only were you immersed into Christ's death, you were also at the moment of your salvation immersed into Christ's resurrection life. Look at verse 4. It says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the gospel. This is that powerful demonstration of God that we talked about last week. That God's 
Divine power results in God's glory alone. See, when you are saved, your old life with its slavery to sin and to its fear of God's condemnation died and was buried. Why? So that you as a believer could walk in a newness of life. How new is new is the new life that we experience as believers? Well, verse 4 says that this newness of life is exactly like when Christ was raised from the dead. And how radical was that event when Jesus rose from the dead? What went into that grave was totally different than what came out of that grave. See, as a Christian, if he is a Christian at all, a Christian is someone who has been and is being radically transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Have become new. Why? Because all of us as believers have been spiritually baptized and immersed into Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be saved. We have been baptized into his death and into his life. So this is the spiritual reality that baptism is talking about. When Jesus died and was buried beneath God's judgment and wrath, we as believers joined him in that death. And when Jesus rose again to a new life, we rose with him. And so now when God sees us, he sees us in Christ Jesus. As 1 John 5.20 says, we know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. So to see the awesome meaning now in biblical baptism, it is not a mere ceremony, it is a beautiful picture of a union that exists between a believer and his savior, Jesus Christ. We are immersed into him, and biblical baptism is a picture of that. Going under the water publicly declares, I have been buried with Jesus by being immersed into his death, and coming up out of that water declares, I have been raised again to walk in a newness of life. I have experienced a complete transformation by the grace of God. That is what baptism pictures. It declares my old life, living for the pleasure of sin is dead. My new life, living for the pleasure of God has come. And I want to declare it to everyone who knows me. It's baptism right there. So putting it all together for a definition. Putting it all together for a definition. Biblical baptism is when a professing believer is immersed into and raised out of water as a public and confirmed testimony of his faith and of his spiritual immersion and resurrection in Jesus Christ. That's baptism. And it is beautiful. It is a beautiful picture of the salvation that we enjoy every single day of our Christian lives by God's grace. And it's because of that It is because baptism is such a beautiful picture of salvation that baptism should not be entered into lightly and should be carefully administered by a local church and by its leaders just like communion is or should be. Baptism should only be administered after a cautious examination and confirmation performed by spiritual leadership. 
By the way, John the Baptist actually set the precedent for this. John did not immediately baptize whoever came forward to make a decision. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, John the Baptist said to the crowds that were coming out of Jerusalem to be baptized by him, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now that's pretty harsh, but you get the picture that he's communicating. The path to baptism is a little bit more than just saying a prayer and getting dunked. A person's profession of faith needs to be examined. This is how the church is to, in our day, ladies and gentlemen, unblur the line and keep it clear. You claim to know Christ this morning. Congratulations. Millions of other people do as well. The question is, though, Not whether you subjectively claim to be a Christian this morning. The question I really want to ask you is this. Would any orthodox, Bible-believing, gospel-teaching local church ever objectively confirm your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ based upon your doctrine and your living? There are far too many people in America today that simply thinks that they can walk around and suddenly call themselves Christians. As if salvation was some a subjective thing no salvation is not a subjective experience it is an objective reality that a local church can and must observe examine and either affirm or deny that is under the authority of a local church ladies and gentlemen jesus said to his apostles when he was describing the church i give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And we are to observe, examine, and either affirm or deny through baptism. Through baptism. So before John would ever baptize anyone from Jerusalem, who, by the way, were being led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he had to first see fruit in keeping with repentance. He had to see evidence of turning from sin and turning to God before he baptized anyone. Why? It's because the picture of baptism needs to represent the reality of baptism. It is not to be entered into lightly nor carelessly. However, once the fruit has become evident, and it becomes clear that a person both understands and professes the truth of the gospel, nothing should prevent that individual from getting baptized at all. Why? Because baptism is made for them. I mean, baptism, this is the definition of biblical baptism. Biblical baptism is when a profession, professing believer is immersed into and raised out of water as a public and confirmed testimony of his faith and of his spiritual immersion and resurrection into Christ. So, having then looked at a definition of biblical baptism, we need to compare that briefly this morning with the deviations from biblical baptism. I didn't even know whether I should talk about this this morning, But I think it's needful. When you declare truth into a world of error, you have to not only proclaim the truth, but you also have to confront the error. And so I have to do that for a few moments this morning. There are two main deviations from biblical baptism that we see in the world today. The first is what I would call false believers baptism. This is when someone who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ nevertheless still gets baptized. And there are two main reasons why someone might consider doing this. 
Uh, first, an unbeliever might want to get baptized because they think that the act of baptism itself will save them. Second, an unbeliever might decide that he wants to get baptized because they hope to fool everyone, maybe even God, into thinking that they are saved even though they know that they're not. But here's the truth that I want you to consider this morning. First, baptism does not save you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 teaches, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So God's blessing of salvation comes to a soul, not through baptism or through communion, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's why the paralytic in the stretcher, and that's why the thief on the cross could be declared forgiven and saved by Christ in that instant, even though they literally could not lift a finger. Because all that is required to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ. They were saved without a drop of water ever touching them. The only thing necessary for salvation is to believe in Jesus Christ. So baptism doesn't save you. Second, baptism won't fool anyone. It shouldn't fool others, frankly, because an outward act of baptism has never been the test of saving faith. I hope you don't sit there and say, you know, someone walks up to you and says, hey, I was baptized. I hope you don't immediately assume they must be saved. Absolutely not. Baptism has never been a test of saving faith. It has always been the presence and increase of inner righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as Romans 14, 17 says. So baptism doesn't fool others And second, I want you to know this morning, baptism definitely does not fool God. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God's eyes are described in Scripture as flames of fire burning and piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and He discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart God isn't fooled by an outward act like baptism. He sees the heart and he knows, according to Romans 14, 23, that whatever does not proceed from a heart of faith in Jesus Christ is sin. Even baptism is a sin if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ. So to get baptized when you really aren't trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior is a fake baptism. And God's not fooled. But there's a second form of deviant baptism that we see in our world today, and that is what I would call this forced baby baptism. This is when parents have their newborn infants undergo an involuntary forced observance where the baby is sprinkled with water in front of an entire congregation. Even though it's not immersion, they nonetheless call it an infant baptism. There are two main reasons why parents do that in the world today. First, if you're Catholic, they do it for the sake of their children's salvation. They believe that the ceremonial washing of the body brings about a spiritual washing of the soul, and that forgiveness and salvation is obtained at least partially through baptism. Second, if you're not a Catholic, everyone else has their infants baptized for the sake of essentially what I would call special blessings. Some people view infant baptism as a sign or a seal of entering into the community of Christ, as they call it, the fellowship of Christians. They believe that through their infant baptism, their their child receives from God special blessings by being outwardly recognized as part of the church community. But here's the truth, all right? First, infant baptism is not in the Bible. Try to find it. You will not find it anywhere. 
The only type of baptism you'll ever see in Scripture is believer's baptism. When people try to justify infant baptism from Scripture, you'll always see them trying to read something into the text, never bringing anything out of it. So infant baptism is not and cannot be a biblical form of baptism because it's not found in the Bible. Second, just like any other baptism, infant baptism cannot impart salvation, contrary to what the Catholics teach. Again, Titus 3, 5 and following tells us this, that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, like baptism, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of baptism? No, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through baptism? No, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by baptism? No, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, baptism, even infant baptism, can't impart salvation. Third, infant baptism cannot impart any special blessings. Think with me for a moment. What spiritual blessings could your unregenerate infant possibly receive from God? Think about it. I mean, besides you and others being a godly influence in their life, which will happen whether they're baptized or not, are they not, are they not cut off from the blessings of God and alienated from the life of God because of their unregenerate heart? I don't mean to be harsh. I just mean to be very truthful and to word this in a way that is very clear. The only doorway to God's spiritual blessings in this life is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As Ephesians 1.3 says, God the Father blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you don't have God's Son, you don't have God's blessings. That's what Scripture teaches. Therefore, you cannot experience the blessings of belonging to the community of Christ until you actually belong to Christ. So infant baptism isn't in the Bible. Infant baptism cannot impart either salvation or spiritual blessings. And then finally, infant baptism attacks the true meaning of the church. Some people view infant baptism to be the equivalent of what circumcision was to the nation of Israel as a sign or a seal that was given upon entering God's covenant community. Perhaps you've heard this. And so we ought to baptize infants, the argument goes, born to professing believers because they are entering God's new covenant community, the community of Christ. But listen, if you're not saved, you're not in the new covenant, and you're not in the community of Christ. So when you start baptizing unbelievers, even infant unbelievers, and say that they are somehow, even to a small degree, a part of the church, listen, that is patently untrue. Because unlike Israel, under the old covenant, only the church under the new covenant is made up entirely of only believers. Jeremiah 31, 31-34 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And listen to verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for listen to this. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. They shall all know me. That is the new covenant. So why would you apply the picture of the new covenant, baptism, to those who do not know God, who are not in the new covenant? To take such a position undermines the true meaning of the church. The church is not a community of baptized individuals made up of saved and unsaved. No, the church is made up of saved individuals, baptized and unbaptized. And that is an important distinction that needs to be made in 21st century America. The church and baptism is only for the redeemed. It's only for the redeemed. So we've seen the definition of biblical baptism. Biblical baptism is when a professing believer is immersed into and raised out of water as a public and confirmed testimony of his faith and of his spiritual immersion and resurrection in Christ. We've also seen the deviations from biblical baptism. False believers, forced babies baptisms. Finally, I want to finish with the demand for biblical baptism. In other words, why should those who have trusted in Jesus Christ be saved? What ought to be our motivation, our compulsion? What is the demand for baptism upon us? Is baptism for believers merely a suggestion made by God, which is something that we can ignore or refuse? The answer I want you to see this morning is quite simply no. There is a scriptural demand for believers to partake in biblical baptism, a demand that is produced by two powerful motivations that exist within every true believer's heart. First, we ought to be motivated as believers, to be baptized publicly as Christians. Because first, baptism is our command. Baptism is a command. Every able-bodied believer is called to publicly declare his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ by being publicly baptized. We see this in Christ's great commission, as I've already mentioned, in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples And then he immediately follows that up by saying, baptizing them. In other words, in Jesus' mind, there is no such thing as an unbaptized disciple of his. Really? Think about that. If you are following him, Jesus says, you will follow me into the waters of baptism. Over in Acts 2.38, the Holy Spirit commanded under Peter's preaching, repent and be baptized. And in verse 41, every single believer that did repent was baptized. Every believer obeyed. All who received his word were baptized. About 3,000 souls. After Cornelius and the rest of the Gentiles believed in Jesus, Acts 10.48 tells us that Peter, listen to this, commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is our command. We command people, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we also command people, believe and be baptized. 
for the glory of God. Baptism is our command. It is given to us by the one that we claim to be our Savior and our Lord. And His sheep hear His voice and they follow Him. Baptism is our command and it is our delight as I want you to see next. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then be baptized and declare that faith in Him publicly as He's commanded you to do. But secondly, baptism is our delight as believers. Remember, baptism shouldn't be a burden to any believer. It should be a delight. It is one of the ways that God has told us how we can glorify Him by responding to the gospel. See, living for the glory of God has not been left nebulous for us. God says, the first way I want you to glorify me, having trusted in my son Jesus Christ, is I want you to declare that faith to everyone you know by getting baptized, by getting immersed, by presenting the gospel by your very actions. Take a stand. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but delight in it publicly for the glory of God. Be baptized. Getting baptized, listen, if you haven't gotten baptized this morning, I want you to think about this. Getting baptized is not something that you have to do. There are plenty of people around the world that have not trusted in Jesus Christ, that have their hearts and minds darkened, that cannot see the glory of Jesus Christ. They will never get baptized. But you have had your eyes opened in faith. You see the glory of Jesus You understand the work that he's done in you by his grace. You don't have to get baptized, believer. You get to be baptized, believer, for the glory of God. You get to worship him in this most glorious way. Why wouldn't you want to do that? You get to reflect the wonder of your salvation in a very special once-in-a-lifetime event. You get to testify to your faith and your union with Jesus Christ and your love for him in a way that proclaims the gospel in every act or action and action. You get to respond to the gospel for the glory of God. So I want to encourage you, do so. This is my application. Simple. When regarding biblical baptism, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We understand what baptism truly means. So let's proclaim it through water baptism, through biblical baptism. Be a first responder to the gospel. Believe and be baptized. Go public. Stake your claim. Declare who you belong to be. Belong to. As Acts 22.16 says this, In light of the command and the delight of baptism, Acts 22, 16 says this, Why now do you wait? Rise and be baptized. This is the first step after trusting in Christ and living a life that has lived entirely for the glory of God. Believe and be baptized. This is the word of God to you today, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. If you'd like some help with that, I will be up front. You can grab one of the elders as well. But in the meantime, let us pray to this end that we might faithfully obey the word of God presented. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of baptism. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life that he lived under the law. 
in our place. We thank you for his perfect death. That he took your wrath and he died to sin on the cross with its condemnation upon him. He died to sin and condemnation in our place. And Father, we thank you for Jesus that he rose again the third day and exhibited a new, eternal, indestructible life. And Father, we rejoice that we who have trusted in him are one with him. One in his death. One in his resurrection. One in his new life. Father, we thank you that while the rest of the world pursues all these vain things you have opened our eyes to the glory of jesus christ and you have helped us and you have enabled us and you have opened our blind eyes to see his glory and have enabled us to believe in him by faith alone by your grace alone in christ alone and now we have a whole life that we get to live for your glory alone father i pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has not yet been baptized but has trusted in jesus christ they would take the action this morning to worship you in this way for your honor and for your glory. And may the rest of us, Father, simply appreciate this wonderful union that we have with Jesus. Help us to reflect that this week. Help us to remember what our baptism truly means. And may we walk in a newness of life for your honor and for your glory the rest of this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.